Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. We have a great show today, don't we? We do have a good show. I, I go. I go great. You go. Okay. You go good. I go great. I think great ha- greatness happens when you have Mike Ruzioni from the Miracle on Ice on the show to talk about the Olympics, the NHL not being there, and uh, and all kinds of other stuff, including his teammates that sell off their gold medals and such. It's a great moment for a great opportunity. But we also have a uh, Chicago Sun Times writer and epic Twitter ranter, Mark <laughs> Lazarus, joining us talking about the Blackhawks. And I think it's some pretty good stuff. Plus, I hope everybody got their flowers and their chalky candies because it is, of course, Valentine's week. And we play matchmaker. We play keep it. We shoot our arrows into the buttocks of several NHL trade deadline <laughs> players and figure out where we'd like to see them land on this edition of ESPN and Ice. From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Hey everybody, it's ESPN on ice. This is the podcast where ESPN covers hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, NHL senior writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, a national NHL writer with ESPN. And I'm on my 10th cup of coffee because between getting up early to watch the U.S. women's national team and also staying up late because I love the Olympics and will literally watch anything. I will watch events in which they combine skiing and guns. That's how much I love the Olympics. I'm working on roughly three hours of sleep in the last several days. I found out that Central Time Zone is the one time that I'm not I'm not appreciative of Central Time Zone at this one time because the Olympics have been rough for me. But I shared on Twitter this week, um, I've always had trouble with times of the Olympics. My journalism debut came 20 years ago today. Wow. Uh, this week, I wrote to the Montclair Times about why the Olympics <laughs> were on so late. I had to wait until 11 p.m. to watch Tara Lipinski skate, and I wanted to know if CBS thought that was mean. <laughs> I published that note on Twitter. It got some it reaction. Was a, it, it was one of the best written letters to the editor I think I've ever seen. I mean, you could tell right away. The Pulitzer that's in your future through yeah. this letter to the editor. My mom actually had to bring a uh, handwriting sample to the newspaper office to prove that I actually wrote it. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's pretty Are it's you a legendary. Yeah, legendary in my family. That's so uh, funny. But I was so clear and concise. I don't know when I got so wordy over time. I've also softened over age. I'm not as angry. Yeah, I, I compensate for that on this podcast for you. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, do you have one Olympic event that you find yourself just being mesmerized by every four years? Yeah, it's figure skating for me. I, yeah. I don't regularly follow figure skating. Like when the world championships come on, I'll, I'll watch it here and there. But I fall in love with the figure skaters every year. And this year we've got such lovable group for the Americans. It's probably snowboarding for me. Not only because I tried snowboarding for the first time earlier this month. And, me too. Uh, you did? What'd you think? I did it this past weekend. I spent most of the time on my butt. It is mm-hmm. so hard to sit these days. I fell so many times. <laughs> it was really difficult. I also... The most did embarrassing thing is I, I, I did skiing when I was little, and the most embarrassing thing is I did it, you know, oh, an hour away from Chicago in Wisconsin, which is super flat, so it was like such a lame hill that I kept falling on. <laughs> I did it in New Hampshire. I couldn't figure out skiing. I couldn't make the damn pizza with my feet. I couldn't make oh. the snowplow. I couldn't stop. Like I was fine skiing real fast. Yeah. But uh but then the the end of every run would be a, a horrific crash where I would hurt myself. And I actually talked to my dad this week and he told me that he's been skiing like three times and also didn't learn how to stop. So there must be some deformity with the Wyshynski feet that doesn't yeah. allow us to make it's in these your calves. simple 
Yeah, a, a simple p- a slice of pizza shape that uh, like uh, five year olds were making while I was there. But I tried snowboarding, and and now I have a better appreciation for it, having done oh it. Oh my god, yeah. And uh, and I I find it to be mesmerizing, like the half pipe and the 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 downhill thing and the whole thing. Like I I you know I think about myself and how I struggled to even do fundamental things on a snowboard and then i see people grabbing it and flying through the air like a helicopter and i said to myself how long would it have taken in my life if i had started at like three years old and could i have ever done it to accomplish those those feats i have faith probably not do you think that you could are you what, what grade would you give yourself as a snowboarder right now Oh, out of 10, like a 1.8. Like, I was super <laughs> impressed watching Chloe Kim. Like, her flips and stuff were amazing. But when she got off, how she, like, seamlessly, like, slid in and greeted her mom or coach and, like, just mm-hmm. stopped right at the moment, that was the most impressive to me. I like, I'd give myself a 1.2, but I'm, like, a okay. 9.9 for drinking beers at the fireplace. Afterwards, there which I, there I you find go. is the real appeal for me in winter sports. Uh, winter sports, speaking of which, hockey is one, and the trade deadline is coming up <laughs> later this month. Uh, it is, of course, Valentine's week, Emily. Uh, it is. Uh, I, I, I give you a, a through this podcast uh, and through the static of it a giant bouquet of of of, of roses that I've overpaid for at a bodega here in New York. Um, the matchmaking is a thing that happens at Valentine's Day, and I believe that it is time. Did you ever have a computer dance, by the way, in high school? We had one. No, we, we put our information in a computer, and they printed out something and matched us up with. With, with women, with girls, I guess, at the time, uh, in high school, which I don't think is something that could exist today. This no, was an arcane no, thing. no, yeah. yeah, there's no way. Yeah, I think, I think, today, I think it was gone by my time. Right. Today would definitely be an invitation for stalking, I think would be the <laughs> thing that would probably happen if you were matched up with somebody. It's kind of creepy to think about it now. I'm surprised the school system didn't get sued, but it is New Jersey. Uh, we have a several players to talk about here. And talking about whether or not you think they're going to end up with a certain team or not. Let's begin with Rick Nash. If you were to play Cupid, Emily, and to draw your bow back and fire that little heart-tipped arrow, where would you send Rick Nash? Well, if I really want to be Cupid and make a great love connection, I'd send him to Columbus, uh, his <laughs> original NHL home, That's and have great. him reunite there and mend the fences with the fans who kind of soured, soured on him at the end of his tenure there before his trade to the Rangers. But realistically, if I want to find a match where everyone is just lovey-dovey and happy from the beginning, I think it's Nashville who, Mm. you know, David Poyle always wants to make one move before the deadline. And I don't think luring Fisher out of retirement was it. I think he's got something else in him. And, man, he would make that lineup with so much depth at center um, just to give them another, you know, scoring threat that you can place in, like, the second or third line that would make them extra dangerous in the West. See, I'll go with you on the rom-com idea of reuniting <laughs> Rick Nash with his, his old flames, but I'll go in a different direction. I think we're in the rom-com where he bumps into his ex in a different city by happenstance and they rekindle. And by Is that, that of course, I mean, come on Ken down, Hitchcock? come on down to Dallas. <laughs> oh gosh. And reca- rekindle that magic you had with Ken Hitchcock with the Columbus Blue Jackets. It's a mutual admiration society. Hitch has talked about Nash being great and Nash has credited Hitch with making him a better all-around player. The Dallas Stars could definitely use his veteran goal scoring prowess. 
uh, on their second line or third line if you'd like. Uh, their first line is pretty well taken care of. I think it's a good fit for him. It's a place where he can go and just kind of be Rick Nash and not have the weight of the world on his shoulders when he doesn't score in the playoffs, which he won't. Uh, so I would say Dallas would be the place where I would send Nash, and then I think that they also have some assets that could entice the New York Rangers to send him there. Uh, speaking of the Rangers, Michael Grabner, also a pending UFA like Rick Nash, if you could play matchmaker with Michael Grabner, what would you do? Well, being a matchmaker, I can, you know, kind of people say their preferences and they say, no, I would never date someone like that. But then when you look them in the eye, you're like, you know, maybe you are kind of for me. And right. if you're the Rangers, you're like, I would never, ever deal him to someone in the division. But they can look at the Penguins and say, you know what? I think you're a match. I, I, I really do think we can get past our differences and. Look, I think there's a lot of speed in the Penguins. It's kind of untapped. You've got Haglin. Hornquist has been great, but he's been injured. Grabner would be a wonderful second or third line winger for them. Uh, he is the Rangers' top goal scorer. As my dad, who grew up a Rangers fan, notes to me, like half of his goals have come on empty netters. <laughs> he's, he's a little <laughs> sour on, you know, inflating his goal stats, but he's a productive player. And I think he could do a lot of wonders for that Penguins lineup. So you're saying the Penguins in this scenario are a girl with paint covered overalls. The Rangers reach over, they take off her glasses, she takes her hair down, and they just And realize, she's Rachel Lee Cook. <laughs> Where's my Freddie Prince? I'll go Michael Grabner to the Winnipeg Jets. I, I, mostly because I'd like, I think he fits well with what they have on that roster already. But I also like the idea of the Jets finally having a chance to uh, be a bit more aggressive at the deadline and start adding pieces at the deadline, even if it's a rental, uh, as they are clearly positioned to be a cup contender in a way this year that they've not been before. Thank you, Connor Hallibuck. Uh, so I would say Michael Grabner to the Winnipeg Jets, maybe just fastest guy in the league plus Jets makes sense to me. Uh, if you were to play matchmaker for one Mike Green of the Detroit Red Wings, another expiring contract UFA, this time a defenseman, where would you send him? Hmm. I think, um, I want to send any defenseman to this team because I love this team and I think they've been so complete this year, but are just missing that one something and that's the Tampa Bay Lightning. And- ah. It would be really exciting to see them get like a Mike Green as their number five or number six defenseman, and that would just put them over the edge. I like that idea. I like the idea of Stevie Eisman kicking some assets to his old friends in Detroit, getting them back on their feet again. Uh, but I think as, as much as I would like to play the rekindling a romance card with Mike Green and have him become a Washington Capitol again uh, in a dream scenario in which he helps win a Stanley Cup with them years after leaving uh, as a young gun, I would have to say that I think to play matchmaker, I would put him in uh, blue pajamas and have him be a Toronto Maple Leafs defenseman. The Leafs obviously are a team that needs, I think, a little bit of help on the blue line. They need a few veteran hands at this point to battle the Lightning or the Bruins within that division. And obviously Mike Green on the same team, chucking outlet passes to the Marners and Nylanders and Matthews of the world would be a fun sight to see. Guy, guy knows how to play quick. the talent. Please. I'm going to interject. I'm checking Twitter because I'm being so rude as you are speaking the soliloquy. And just as you're saying this, we get a tweet from Christopher Clark. Coffee talk. Why is Mike Green not in New York Islanders yet? Discuss. <laughs> and you know what? Uh, yeah, as an Islanders fan, I totally either. get it. I mean, yeah. we talk so much about how bad their defense, how bad they are. You know, they're scoring all these goals. We blame it a lot on the goaltending, but the defense has been just as bad. And they sure could use a veteran defenseman and definitely someone, you know, they don't need the offense, but Mike Green couldn't hurt. No, I, I think they could definitely use an offensive defenseman, but you're asking Garth Joe to make an aggressive deadline move. That might be asking <laughs> a lot. Uh, Evander Kane. 
I'll skip all the romance stuff with Vander Kane. Where do you think he's going? <laughs> um, I would love, I'm gonna get super gushy to compensate for you. No, um, I think that there's two teams in the central that would be fantastic for him. One would be the Dallas Stars and mm-hmm. the other would be the St. Louis Blues. Wouldn't oh. you love that? I would love to see him on the Blues. Everyone knows I'm bullish on the Blues, but I would love to see them be active in the trade deadline. I know, you know, they've, they've had some experience with rentals in the past, but this is one that is not going to hurt them. Let's see. A, a general manager that wants his team to win the cup is going to be super aggressive to get players that will help him win a cup and also has a reputation for, let's say, being a bit rehabilitative when it comes to players with off-ice problems. That GM is David Poyle. The team is the Nashville Predators. Evander Kane with the Predators would... Fletcher for a second. <laughs> That's good too. Uh, Evander Kane obviously would help f- fulfill fill the, the the hole they have there, goal scoring wise, with the loss of James Neal to the Vegas Golden Knights in the expansion draft. Uh, and obviously, it is a coach and a a team uh, that I think he could uh, in in the short term uh, fit in as as a cog in a machine. And David Poyle has never shied away from acquiring players with off ice issues. So Evander Kane to the Nashville Predators would be my choice. And finally, as we uh, are a little a little angel in a little diaper with a bow and arrow, and we draw back the bow, we fire the arrow at Ryan McDonough. He's got a little bit of term, got a, a year after this one. But where do you think the Rangers defenseman would go if you were to make a match with Ryan McDonough? Well, obviously what would make the most sense is keep with the Minnesota boys and go to the wild. Oh, like, can yeah. you imagine him, Suter, Zach Parise, like all the Minnesota natives doing good and finally winning cup for them. But um I think what actually makes the most sense, if he finally does move, which I'm not convinced he will, is to go to the Lightning. And ah. mainly because Tampa has just as many New Yorkers vacationing down there as they have former Rangers in their locker room. It's clearly a good match. He could reunite with his buddies, Dan Girardi and Ryan Callahan, and um he he would be excellent for them. Right. And then, of course, in the short term, he kind of fits the contractual obligation of the Lightning, which is to not have a guy with a ton of term, but have a guy who's coming off a contract right around the same time. You have to re-sign uh, uh, Vasilevsky and, and Kucherov to, to new deals. So not not a bad thought there. Uh, I would say, let me throw a curveball, Boston Bruins. Throw together mm. a bunch of those kids, Brandon Carlo, maybe, Jake DeBrusque, maybe, throw a one in there. And uh, and put Ryan McDonough on your blue line for a couple runs at a cup, knowing that you've got just a great young team uh, that's going to contend for a while uh, around that. a player like McDonough. So there you go. And plus, you know, Irish, Boston, what have you. And now it's time for the extra attacker. Joining us now is Mark Lazarus. He's, of course, the beat writer for the Chicago Sun-Times covering the Chicago Blackhawks. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, what a beautiful podcast. You invited me. Good thinking. You invited all of my friends. Good thinking. How thoughtful of us. Um, Good thinking. That was a line. But, like, we start off talking about The Room with you, uh, but we should probably reference another movie at this point, which would be the 1970s classic Network, uh, which involved uh, a man uh, on, on the air, a newscaster, screaming, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> because... We wanted to talk to you about this, an epic Twitter rant that you went on uh, about Blackhawks fans um, that I believe you you re- referenced before starting it, that this was going to be an ill-advised rant. <laughs> I believe I started it by saying I'm stupid, yes. <laughs> and then Help. went on it anyway. What, 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 what inspired you to uh, lay, lay your cards on the table like that about uh, Blackhawks fandom and the state of the team? 
Well, and, and, and I pointed out at the beginning of it, not only was I stupid for saying it, but I was talking about a small segment of the fan base. I mean, sure. you know, the, 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 the Twitter amplifies the lunatics. We all know that. It's like I always equate it to like it's, the, it's like the Fox News viewership. It's a small segment of the population, but they're by far the loudest and the craziest. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what like, the Twitter fans are like. And I think most Blackhawks fans are taking this in stride. They're mad. They're not happy about it. They're disappointed, but they're not going crazy. But, man, maybe it's just me. Maybe I attract these people. But my mentions for, for months now, and especially these last few weeks, the, they've turned on these guys where it's not they're, they're, they're not upset that Brent Seabrook is in decline. They hate him for it. They're, they hate Jonathan Taves for slipping. They hate Joel Quenville. Like, they want these people shot into the sun. And it's like, have some perspective on what these guys have done for you in the last 10 years. I'm no homer by any stretch. I'm not a Chicago native. I'm not a Blackhawks fan. I never was. But it's, 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 it's kind of disheartening to see these people just completely turn on these guys, mm. not be just upset, but be mad and to hate them and the vitriol that they spew on a nightly basis. It's, it's no way to live your life, man. No. And I think the reason that you're seeing a lot of on your mentions is you're one of the beat writers that travels with them all the time, and you're unfortunately delivering the news. I'd love to know, <laughs> though, uh, you know, firstly, how cathartic was it? And secondly, have you heard from anyone in the Blackhawks who – who maybe appreciated you um, speaking on their behalf? Not on their uh, behalf, but just speaking some reason. I don't know if it was cathartic. I mean, I've I've, I've yelled at people before on Twitter. It's kind of what I do for a living. But um, it's, it's uh, I felt like it needed to be said. I just wanted to say it because I was tired of these people. I, I don't block anybody. Maybe that's my problems. I I'm 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 neck deep in the negativity of Twitter because I don't block anybody. But uh, nobody from the Blackhawks has said anything. Uh, that's not really the Blackhawks style. I think you're learning that this year, Emily. Is that there's not a lot of uh, <laughs> not a lot of give and this, take. <laughs> there's not a lot of yeah. There's not a lot of acknowledgement that you exist as a writer. <laughs> so um, no, it's just you know. And again, I, 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 I was surprised that it kind of caught fire a little bit there. I, I probably have Elliot Friedman to blame for that because he's the one who retweeted it. <laughs> But uh, people were, were, were misconstruing it. Non-Blackhawks fans were going, well, look at all the bandwagon guys. They're all terrible fans. And that wasn't the point at all. And, you know, fans of other teams were like, you know, uh, trying to put it in perspective. As, yeah, I would have killed for that kind of run. How could you turn on these guys? It was, it was aimed at a, at a small but very, very vocal and very, very stupid segment of the fan base. Hmm. All that said, what the hell happened this year? I, I really <laughs> thought that we could squeeze a little bit more water out of the stone. I actually had the Blackhawks as a playoff team this year. Uh, I, listen, I don't bemoan the, the, the notion that they might have missed. They weren't going to be a playoff team, but I certainly didn't think they'd be this, this not a playoff team. Is it simply the Corey Crawford injury or, or is there more uh, involved here at the uh, Blackhawks being uh, double digits away from the wild card at this point? Well, the Crawford thing is is probably the biggest factor. I mean, they were in a wild card spot when he got hurt uh, right before Christmas, and they've plummeted since then. Jeff Glass and Anton Forsberg did a yeoman's work for a little while there, but we're starting to see the cracks in that dike. They're just not good enough right now. Um, so that's a big part of it. But this team looked old and slow right from the start this year. It was not a well-constructed roster. Uh, uh, you know, Stan Bowman made some moves in response to that sweep to the Predators last year, but that was a 50-win team last year, and I think they overreacted a little bit to that uh, that sweep, that one really bad week, and it was really bad. Uh, they've done a good job of kind of like recognizing that they looked old and slow, and they've retooled, and the roster is so much younger now than it was even three, four months ago. There's like 14 or 15 guys, 25 or younger now. You dump Richard Panic's terrible contract and bring in some promise with Anthony Duclair. Alex Dabrinkit's getting top six minutes finally. Uh, Nick Schmaltz is looking like the second or third best player on the team. Uh, so there's, there's reason for hope. 
But this is a, a poorly constructed team with a bad defense that doesn't have the speed to keep up. And, and you're seeing, you know, this is the, the price of success. You, you, when you win for that long, you start having to give out those contracts, and eventually it, it goes away. The Hawks are trying to be, do what the Bruins did, what the Penguins did, which is keep that aging core and retool around them. That's the hope. There's a lot of good young players on this team, and Dylan Sakura probably coming up next. And who knows? They might win the draft lottery with a frozen envelope and get Rossi Stalin <laughs> here. I mean, the, the, the window isn't closed just yet. This is rock bottom right now, but they're hoping that they don't have to go into all in tear down and tank mode because you can't tear down this roster. Those four or five guys just aren't movable. That is my favorite thing about the Blackhawks' uh, decline this year, by the way, is that now they are the team that everyone believes the draft will be fixed for to get Duncan Keith and Rasmus Dahlin on, in, on the same blue line. Every every you know cycle, there's somebody who's like, oh, they're definitely going to fix it. Here the Flyers are definitely getting the top pick because Comcast <laughs> is why. And the only time they ever actually did it was for Mario. <laughs> well, wasn't Gary Bettman still in the NBA when the Knicks got Ewing? Yeah, he certainly oh, was. Gosh. He certainly was. So there's there's and, precedent. Yeah, exactly. Now, Sid, Sid, they fixed the draft to get Sid to uh, Pittsburgh, um, but then I think they forgot how to do it, and that's why we ended up with Connor and Edmonton. <laughs> and Austin. What, what if Edmonton wins the draft lottery again? Oh, God. Well, if they, good for if, them. If they do, then they'll probably flip Darlene for a winger at some point. I mean, this is just how our lot in life is to see. You know, I, I thought there was going to be a point in history, and I thought it was beginning last year where the Oilers are no longer going to be the team that's going to find find ways to screw this up. Uh, but uh, but clearly I was wrong. Uh, they, they found new and exciting ways to screw this up, and I, I mourn for Connor. I mourn for Eichel more than Connor, to be honest with you, but I mourn for Connor. Both those guys, just what a what a disaster it is having them in those two markets. <laughs> yeah, free Jack Eichel. But uh, back to the Blackhawks. Uh, you know, it's funny. I wrote a pretty big article. It's going to come out Wednesday about exactly what you said of how kind of the Blackhawks have transformed before our very eyes this year. You know, we're all lamenting about what they're not. But if you look at what they are right now, they're a team that's looking towards next year. But one of the things, you know, and I've been around the team, I've seen, you know, pretty much most of their home games um, live is that. It's like everything is going wrong with them. They're a good possession team. They're, they're, they're just as strong, if not stronger than most of their opponents. And it's just bad puck luck. Like, especially with Jonathan Taze, you look at his points and it, it's not quite as bad as someone might make it. Well, can you, can you quantify that or, or how can you explain, you know, why they're in this position with well, yeah, that I mean, all I mean, going on? You know, they were a 50 win team last year, but that was a lot of, because of Corey Crawford and a lot of timely goals late. I mean, they, that was the second winningest team in, uh, season in franchise history, but they were nowhere near what you expect a 50 win team to look like. They, they always got by by the skin of their teeth. It seems like all those receipts are coming in now where every game that they're close in, they lose late. They can't hold mm-hmm. a lead. They can't get that last second goal that Marion Hosta always used to score. They, 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 there's a lot of that. I mean, Brandon Saad is having this horrible season and everyone's lamenting yes. him. He's like fifth in the NHL in, in Corsi percentage. He's up there with Patrice Bergeron. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's a flawed stat, obviously, because he's not around the net enough, but he's not giving up anything. He's still playing effective hockey. He and Taves, they're just getting nothing to show for it. And that's been the, the story all season long is every time they're in a close game, they find a way to lose. And for the last nine years, every time they've been in a close game, they found a way to win. It's almost become a running joke in the press box, but like Duncan Keith has the most shots on goal this year without actually scoring a goal than anyone in the league, and I feel like that's so emblematic of this team. He hasn't scored since March 16th of last year. Holy which crazy. Is, for a guy who plays 26 minutes a night is insane. Uh, you and know, he gets pucks I, on net. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's he's he's, he's kind. Of, I always equate him to the kid in, in, in the Mighty Ducks, where one out of five hits the net because he's always banking <laughs> it off the backboard and trying to get like, slap passes and stuff. I mean, he's not a goal scorer by any means, but no. it's almost absurd for him to go this far into the season shooting as often as he did about a hundred and like he's like a hundred and sixty, hundred and seventy shots he's since up his there. last goal. I mean, that's 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 absurd. Yeah, it's never a good look when Brent Seabrook has triple the goals that you do. Uh, we're going to talk it's, about it's infinite more goals. <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a math major. Um, <laughs> but three, three times zero is in fact zero. You're completely right. The, uh, last one for me, uh, you know, I think that when things go sour in Chicago, whether they're in between cups or now on a, a bit of a decline, uh, the conversation always circles back to Joel Quenville. Um, you know, you have half the, the the people saying, "Well, why get rid of him? He's the best, one of the best coaches in, in on the planet." Uh, and then the other half saying, "He's got to go. He doesn't use the players right." Uh, what do you think is going to happen to Pew after the season? I still think Stan Bowman and Joel Quenville get another year. I think the Crawford injury gives them enough cover, and they certainly have enough of a track mm-hmm. record to give them. All right, let's see. They they retooled this roster. Joel's actually done a pretty good job of bringing these kids along and making them into NHL players, and Stan's done a good job of atoning for some of his mistakes by getting the team younger. I think they get one more year to see it through. But, man, if this keeps spiraling the way it's spiraling all of a sudden, that game in Arizona was just awful. And if this goes and this losing streak just keeps going and going and the team starts quitting, you have to wonder if that maybe pushes them over the edge and makes John McDonough and Stan, McD- Stan Bowman rethink this Joel Quenville thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, hockey, hockey coaches have a shelf life. I remember I talked to Joel about it in, uh, in January. And I asked him flat out if he was worried about it, and he said, you know, maybe the message gets a little stale. I mean, after 10 years, maybe the message does get a little stale. The league is changing. He has to change. His system isn't working. His players aren't working in this system. I wouldn't fire him. There's not a better option out there right now, and I think he does deserve another year. I mean, last year was his best coaching job maybe ever. So Mm -hmm. one awful year shouldn't undo all that. But if this keeps getting worse and worse and more and more embarrassing, you wonder if they pull the trigger on something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the last question for me is, you know, Blackhawks fans are obviously looking towards next year now, but they also are looking towards the trade deadline. And we saw Brandon Saad's name come up in Elliot Friedman's 31's thoughts as a potential trade target, which would be Stan Bowman essentially just admitting his mistake and moving on. Which um, never happens, by the way. Which never happens. <laughs> he does not do but, that. Look at Tommy right. Jericho. <laughs> well, Berman, Bowman said, you know, he told NBC Sports, I think it was last week, that he doesn't expect to be an active buyer at the deadline. But what do you think they can look at? And is there any contracts they're looking to unload? I think it would be really foolish to move Saad. You'd be selling low for one thing at this point. You never want to trade a guy when mm-hmm. he's awful. Um, also, he's 25 years old. And he's had this is his one bad season. I look at like Marion Hosa two years ago when Hosa couldn't score for anything. And then he came back last year and had 26 goals. I think that's what we're probably looking at with Saad next year. But... You know, you can move like a guy like a Tommy Wingles, a Lance Boma, Michael Kempney, get draft picks in return. That's what they should be looking for is draft picks at this point. Mm-hmm. The one contract that if you can make it work, if you can get around the no movement clause, is Artem Isimov. That's $4 million, $4.5 million, I think it is. Uh, he's a guy who is very good as Patrick Kane's center, and he can't play anything else. They can't put him in any other role that never works. And Nick Schmaltz is now Patrick Kane's center and will be for the next several years. So Anisimov doesn't really fit in this lineup anymore. He's older, he's not, uh, he's not versatile enough, and his job has been taken. If you can somehow move that contract and get a young player in return, then you, all of a sudden you have a lot more flexibility in the offseason and you can keep retooling this roster. See, I, I think for that's the first a, part th- of the year, Anisimov was one of their best players. Yeah, yeah and until I was, he got but, hurt. But he, he literally can only play on the power play yeah. and as Patrick Kane center. Every time they put him on that third line, he's a disaster. That's a trade for the summer, though, because I think he's, he's got a no-move that becomes a no-trade 
after right. July first. So like I think, a partial list, and yeah. So I mean, unless unless he's there's some place he's very desirous to play, uh, I think that's probably a trade that they make during the summer to get that number off their cap because obviously they need to get some flexibility and uh, reload and recharge. You know, they've done this before the reload recharge thing, but this time it's just not. It's like it's like trying to uh, you know uh, turn the key on your car when the engine's done. You know, well, back then, I mean, 2011 and 2012. You know, yeah. those, that, those core guys were a lot younger, and their they contracts were. were a lot smaller. That's exactly right. They had a lot more uh, uh, flexibility and uh, and some, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how they dig out of this one. All right, Laz, where can people find your stuff? Uh, I'm at suntimes.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mark Lazarus. Didn't you write some silly book recently, too? I did write a silly book recently. Thanks for saying it. Yeah, if these I read that talk, silly Chicago book, and Black I enjoyed it. Laz, what was it called? If These Walls Could Talk, Chicago Blackhawks. Well, there you go. All right. It's, so go it's really good. Up. Good Those anecdotes in there. Talk, they have lots to, to say about the players. Probably a lot. Re- relive the glory days instead of looking at the miserable present. <laughs> if you're a Blackhawks <laughs> fan, that's how it's been the end of the season. But, uh, Mark, we appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care, man. Mark Lazarus of the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, Emily, you wrote a, a piece this week about uh, coaches and why we haven't seen anyone get canned. What did you find out? It was almost sinister writing it because it felt like I was jinxing it and, and hoping that someone would lose their job. And obviously, stability is a good thing. Um, it's really crazy, the NHL. It's, uh, as John Cooper told me, it's a what have you done for me lately uh, league. And since 1966 and 67, that's the year of original six expansion. Uh, we've gotten to this point of the season and we've already had well, at least one coaching change. Last huh. year, we had five coaching changes. There's been 34 in-season firings in the last nine years alone. And this year, there's just strange stability. No one's been fired. And yeah. so I looked into it. I talked to uh, my buddy Neil Glassberg, who pretty much represents half of the league's coaches. He's got a pretty good deal going. He's an agent. And asked him for his theories. And we kind of came up with it. It's a bunch of different things. It's a bunch of different factors. Part of it is that three of the worst teams in the league, the Coyotes, the Sabres, um, and who's the other bad team? The, 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 the Canucks the all Canucks, have yeah. first-year head coaches, and they mm-hmm. all inherited pretty bad rosters, so it would behoove management to give them some more patience. There's also just extraneous circumstances this year. Like we talked about with Mark and the Blackhawks, uh, they probably seem more inclined to give some continuity uh, until next year as they are retooling this year. For the Senators, Guy Boucher is having a terrible year, but so is the entire team, and they've kind of committed to a rebuild, and plus their owner's kind of cheap, probably doesn't want to pay two coaching contracts. And then mm-hmm. you've got the Oilers, and this is what I thought was most interesting. Everyone's wondering what happened to them. They were, you know, the hot name in the preseason. They're failing miserably. Why won't Todd McClellan go? Well, a lot of times when you need to fire your coach, you want an in-house option that's going to succeed them perfectly. So Claude Julien, the reason it worked, they had Bruce Cassidy that they were grooming. Mike Yo was obviously the coach in waiting for Kitchock. In Edmonton, there's no one on that roster. And then, okay, maybe you want to promote your AHL team. Bakersfield, their AHL team is just as bad as the Oilers, so they have nowhere to go. And I think part yeah. of that's part of the reason why Todd McClellan still has a job. That's the truth. I mean, you know, you think about Doug Waite with Capuano. You think about all these moves that have been made in the last couple of years. Always someone in the waiting, which is why the Capitals wouldn't let Todd Reardon go last year, <laughs> in case they needed to get find someone to replace Barry Trotz. Um, but uh, yeah, I think all those factors are solid. But I'll also throw this one out too. I think if things aren't working for your team and you're plummeting down the standings, like the Rangers, for example, with Lane Vigneault, where a lot of Ranger fans have been beside themselves trying to figure out why they haven't fired AV, um, I think I think in this day and age when, when you know the best way to rebuild quickly is by getting a top three pick in the draft and getting a franchise player in those top three picks, why try to make something work? 
Like if you know it's a lost season already, just just let the poison seep in. You know, don't don't make don't make a change on the on the off chance you might get better. It's better yeah. to just send down the standings and reevaluate in the off season instead of turning this thing around if you've got no reason to. If you think that your path to redemption is through the draft versus that we like the things that are here right now and we want to be better. Even in the Oilers case, like if it's not working with McClellan, who cares? You need a defenseman. The best player in the draft is a defenseman. The further you're out of the playoffs, the better it's going to be for you in the long run. Get Connor as D. You know, it's so it's like I I feel like that might be a factor too in the new in the the new NHL and the way that we see teams build. They yeah. build by being awful. It's a great point. One of the interesting things that uh, Neil and I actually discussed at length is the risk that you have when you bring an interim in. Um, and pretty much when you bring in an interim, you're letting the 20 guys on the team decide if they like this guy or not. Right, are yeah. they going to play hard for him or are they not going to play hard for him? And mm. it's really risk and reward. So you're right. It's, if you keep the coach, you know what you have. And if you fire him, it kind of becomes this unknown. And and that's why I think in the interim's case, like the the a lot of times when you see an interim coach come in, it's a guy from, say, like the American Hockey League uh, or, an you know, an assistant coach who has familiarity with the roster. And in the case of like Bruce Cassidy in Boston, like you brought up before, it's a, it was a situation where the younger players weren't playing for Claude anymore. So they bought up Cassidy and lo and behold, <laughs> he got everybody to play for him because they all like him better. So I think that's also a facet of it too. And that's how interim coaches become real coaches. That's not to say interim coaches aren't real coaches. Well, I guess I did. They're not real coaches. They're, they're fake band-aid coaches. And then they become real coaches like. Pinocchio and it's damaging to that guy. Yeah. It, for exactly. his career. I don't know. It, it's a, it, there's a lot of risks you're inheriting as an owner or management when you make a coaching change. And as I wrote in the article, a lot of teams are asking this year, is it really worth it? Exactly. What's it all worth, Emily, is the question that we all ask existentially every day. Greg, you know what? Great moments are born from great opportunities. And I heard that you had a great opportunity last week. I did. I spoke with Mike Ruzioni, miracle on ice hero, about a great many things, including him and his teammates auctioning off their stuff from 1980, which I can't wrap my brain around, but it happens. And we'll find out more about that after the break. I love sports. I just wish they could be with me always. They say you don't choose the app. The app chooses you. It is everything I could ever want in a sports companion. It can stream the games and shows that I love, and it's there whenever I need it. I never thought I could find an app that loves sports as much as I do. Until now. Download the ESPN app to stream ESPN Radio and all the ESPN networks now. And we're back on ESPN on Ice. Greg Wyshynski, Emily Kaplan. Joining us this week, Mike Aruzioni, the 1980 Miracle on Ice hero, uh, to talk about the Olympics, to talk about DNA, to talk about auctioning off gold medals, and also to talk about how your humble co-host is a little sad. That there are no Austin Matthews's or Jack Eichel's in the Olympics. And instead we're watching the James Wisniewski's and the Brian Giantas. Well, because we have athletes representing the United States. Uh, and, you know, we have hockey players who've trained and worked hard in their whole lives to get this opportunity to, to compete. And uh, other situations, they might not have had that opportunity, but now they do. So uh, I'm, I'm excited for, their, for the players. Uh, I know some of the players that are playing. Um, and it's the Olympic Games. What, what, you know, better reason than to be excited about watching Americans uh, compete? It is kind of a cool throwback, right? Like, I mean, it gets more into the Olympic spirit of 
you know, people coming out of nowhere and becoming heroes and, and, uh, and these incredible journeys to get there, uh, versus having a bunch, a bunch of ringers in there, right? <laughs> right. Well, you know, I think it, it just speaks volumes to the depth that we have as, as, as a country of, of hockey players. Uh, you know, there were some young kids, you know, Brian Donato, Jordan Greenway, uh, the Terry kid out of, De- out of Denver, who's a super talented player. And then you've got Brian Gionta, who played in the Olympic Games in Torino, um, as, as a 38 year old captain. So, um, you know, and you get uh, a kid like Chris Bork, um, who's, who's a very talented player, just hasn't been able to get to the NHL for a, a period of time. So it'll be exciting to watch him play. So, um, you know, the kid Ryan Donato, who, who's at Harvard, is, whose father played in the Olympic Games and who's one of the best players in college hockey, to watch him compete. So there's going to be some great storylines. Um, and it, it'll be, like I said, it'll be, it, it'll be exciting. And it's funny, it, you know, we're talking about this team and uh, how diverse they are. And let's go back to, you know, the reason we were kind of talking about being involved today as well, talking about the the, the ancestry heritages of, of all the players and where they come from. So, you know, we're, we're talking about greatness in the Olympic Games, and these players are, are diverse and they come from different backgrounds, but their heritage is different as well. So it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great story all around. It is. It is, absolutely. And we'll, we'll get to America's greatness comes from everywhere in a sec. But I wanted to ask you one more thing about Team USA, because honestly, like, I wrote about this on ESPN and, you know, it could have been Austin Matthews this year. It could have been Jack Eichel this year, Dylan Larkin, Gosses Bear. I could have been, this could have been it, man. This could have been the first one since 1980 where we could have taken gold. (laughs) I want, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you though, like, why don't you, why haven't we won since 80? We got, we got fourth in 92. We got fourth, obviously, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, this uh, past one in Sochi. Got second in Vancouver and second in Salt Lake. Why don't you think we've won gold? Is it just because Canada stood in our way, or is there another reason? It, it just tells you how hard it is to win. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of things have to fall into place, and we clearly have some talented players and talented teams. And, yeah, I guess in some ways Canada has gotten in the way, uh, as have other countries. I mean, there, there's a lot of talent out there in the world, and uh, we're going to get it. I don't know when it's going to be. Um, I hope it's this time around, and if not this time around, the next time around. But clearly when you... <laughs> You know, put on the ice, uh, if you look at, you know, an Austin Matthews, a Clayton Keller, a Dylan Larkin, a Jack Eichel, um, you know, that's a pretty good core of, of young players. Yes. So, you know, maybe maybe it's the next games, but don't be surprised if it's this one either. I mean, you know, every country is going to have an opportunity to compete. Um, but clearly, not all the superstars are there. So it's going to be the team that, 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 I guess, gels together the quickest um, because there is some talent on the ice, but... I, I hope it's this time around. You know, I'm rooting. I, I told someone earlier, you know, we're not the Miami Dolphins where we want no team to go undefeated. We we want gold medals. We want our athletes to be able to to enjoy, um, you know, winning winning a medal. Let alone, you know, the gold medal is is off obviously off off the charts. But yeah, you you, you love to see us on the on the, on the medal stand somewhere. Somewhere, exactly, exactly. Just just uh, get in it, and, and obviously in a tournament like this where it's all kind of up in the air as far as uh, who the good teams might be and who the other teams might be, uh, you know, just getting on the podium would be an, an accomplishment in and of itself. I, I mean, I couldn't help yeah, but hear you drooling over the phone when we were talking about Matthews and Eichel. I mean, this, is, this generation, to finally have a generation of Americans that could go toe-to-toe with anybody else's best offensive weaponry is, is something I, that I haven't experienced in my lifetime. Right. Well, you know, you watch the World Juniors the last few years, uh, you know, we've had a couple of gold medals and some silver medals and some bronze medals. So um, there's talent out there, and it's 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 just getting better and better. I think 
the next crop after the Eichels and the Matthews, there are more players out there that are coming. So yeah, Jack um, Hughes, yeah. We're, we're going to just keep knocking on that door. <laughs> All right. So you are here to talk about America's greatness comes from everywhere. Uh, this big old campaign you're part of. What's uh, tell me a bit about it? Well, it's gonna. It, it, it's pretty funny, um, and I finding not not funny, funny, but funny and, and interesting. Um, you know, I was approached uh, about the campaign about celebrate America's greatness. You know, we're always talking about all American um, athletes, and when you think about it, we all come from different backgrounds. And here I was always thinking I was a hundred percent Italian. You know, my mother, my father, my grandmother, my grandfather, and then when when I took the DNA test, I found out that I've got a little European Jewish in me. I've got a little Mid- Middle Eastern in me, and the, 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 here's the funny part. Uh, Robbie McClanahan, John Harrington, Buzzy Schneider, and, and Davey Christian were also part of the, the campaign. And we found out that Buzzy has a little Russian in him. And <laughs> I kidded Buzzy. I said, now, now I know why you scored so many goals against the Soviets over your career, because you got a little Russian in you. So uh, there were some surprises through the whole Ancestry campaign. And um, I guess surprised to learn the variety of our heritages. And I guess, you know, diversity what is what makes America so great. And when you explore it... Uh, like I said, it's it's interesting to see, and and it was fun for us as a team to be involved with this. That buzzy thing's like finding out that Captain Kirk was a Klingon. I mean, it's like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you like, I said, Buzzy Buzzy owned Trediac. I mean, oh, he yeah. scored goals against. He scored three three one year in the World Championships against them. He scored in the Olympic Games against them. He scored in in Madison Square Garden against them. So uh, now we know why. I met I met Trediak at the Hockey Hall of Fame a few years back. I was wondering, did you ever get a chance to sit down and talk to him at all? Is that a, is that a conversation that ever happened between you and Trediak? No, I've, I've only shook his hand once. Um, I I have not run into any of the Soviet players that I competed against. I know some of my huh. teammates did, Davey and Neil and and Mike Ramsey. I think played with some of these guys, but uh, I've never had a conversation uh, with any of them. Wow, that's I don't interesting. Think too man. interested in talking to me. <laughs> You might, be, might have a good point there. You might might want to duck out, duck to duck into the corner if you see them coming at you. Uh, oh, if especially if they're I'd holding the stick, I take them out. I take them out to dinner. Ah, exactly. Yeah, you'd figure. You know, after all these years, you, you could lay down arms and talk about it. It'd be that'd be a fascinating conversation. Maybe we'll have to set you up. A, you know, they just put Belichick and Parcells in a room for a thirty for thirty here on ESPN. Maybe we got to get you and Trediac together at some point. Um, I know. I missed that. I heard it was outstanding. Oh, they're all outstanding. I mean, come on now. It's it's uh, especially when you, it's Parcells and Belichick, the two uh, biggest football minds in the of all time. Did, right. did you? Are you a Pats fan? Did you watch the the Bowl? I watched it. I was not a, not happy, but you know what? Hey, we've had great success in New England, and uh, you know sometimes you get a little spoiled expecting it all the time. But uh, you know, I, I, we we kidded the next day. I think I could have ran for a hundred yards against the defense that day. It was just not a good uh, not a good defense performance. Uh, you know, Brady yeah. put up absolutely ridiculous numbers, and we still couldn't win. So you know, congratulations to Philadelphia. Uh, you know, we'll be back next year. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. But Brady's going to play until he's 70, so obviously it'll be all right. Uh, yeah. Last thing, last thing I want to ask you about about uh, 80. Um, I, I remember back in what was it like 2013, right about that time, you sold your jersey and you sold your stick from that game. Um, obviously, other guys have put up their medals for auction as well. I've always been fascinated by the post playing career of hockey players, and, and in particular now that we've got the whole concussion thing going on and, and how the NHL takes care of guys after they're done. Um, ha- has it been hard to see you, your teammates part with these 
uh, keepsakes, you know, to, to raise some money here and there. Has it been difficult to see that, or, or was it a difficult decision to make for you? No, it wasn't a difficult decision at all. I, I mean, I mean, some some players, uh, you know, maybe meet, need the money financially, and this is an opportunity for them for a better life for their kids or their grandkids. And you know, my case was that financially things are fine with me. I just felt that I wanted to see where. Um, the money was going to go. I mean, I have three kids and I have two jerseys. I mean, how do you divide that? So <laughs> yeah, right. I decided to, and I and I sat with my kids, and I, they were older. Now I have, I have four grandkids, so my kids were older when I made the decision. I sat down and said, "Look, this is an opportunity for me to take get some money to give to you." Um, and I, I, I think I raised uh, our, everything sold for about one point three million or one point two million, and I endowed a scholarship in my mother and father's name at Boston University. Uh, I took some of the money and put it into my charitable foundation, and the rest of the money uh, went to my kids to divide evenly amongst them to put into a fund for them and their kids and their education. And actually, my daughter ended up buying a house uh, with some of the money. So oh, that's awesome. I wanted to, I wanted to be alive and see where the money went, and not somewhere gone. And I didn't appreciate it and see it. I wanted my grandkids to be able to share in the joy that I had as an athlete, and I wanted to do it while I was still, you know, standing around and. Um, you know, we talked about the medal and the ring that I got from 1980 will never be sold as, as long as I'm alive. Mm-hmm. And I, I always kid that my, my youngest son, who's 29, if I died tomorrow, he'd, he'd sell it the next day. <laughs> so, <laughs> but hey, like like you said, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you you earn the right to to sell this stuff. You know, it's you earn the right, right? You know, yeah, it was sitting in my closet. What what am I going to do? Am I going to wear the jersey? Am I going to you know walk around with the hockey stick in my hand? Am I going to wear my elbow pads and Shoulder pads and pants and gloves. No, it's, it was in a bag in a trunk in the attic. <laughs> Little did oh, I man, know. If, if I was Mike Ruzzione, I'd wear that jersey every day. I would. I would be like one of those weirdos in L.A. <laughs> that wears a full tuxedo during the day, like every day, and walks around the strip. Well, I, I would just. It, it, I'd wear that jersey it, to Starbucks. It, <laughs> well, it's funny. My grandson, who just turned five, um, in his preschool class uh, this week. Uh, next week is Olympic week. Yeah. And the teacher who I went to high school with asked me to come in and speak with the kids. And I'm like, they're five and four years old. I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring my gold medal in and let my grandson, who's never seen it, uh, I'll let him wear it in the class. And that'll be pretty oh, cool. That's so cool, man. That's awesome. All right, Mike Ruzioni. I say this to a lot of people, but I think it's very much applicable to you, sir. You're a great American. And thanks for all you've done for USA Hockey. Thanks for having me on. Our thanks to Mike Ruzione, and to find out more about the My American DNA Project, please head to Ancestry.com. That's Ancestry.com. And this is our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. Good one, Randy. Good one. Oh, boy, does Phil Kessel love hot dogs this week. This is the segment, Emily, in which we look at the crazy hockey media hype of the week. And, uh... Boy, there's no shortage of crazy, but we we picked a good one, I think. And that would be Ken Campbell, our friend from the Hockey News, writing a column titled, Why I'm Boycotting the National Hockey League During the Olympic Hockey Tournament. Uh, It's his boycott because the NHL pulled out of the Olympics, and he's doing a 12-day boycott of the NHL. A personal stake in the ground, he writes, a protest against a league that has chosen to leverage Olympic participation against its own players, one that complained about the expense associated with going and then still balked when those expenses were going to be paid. A league that's so short-sighted, so vindictive and so petty, 
Uh, and it's one that, uh, out of one side of its mouth talks about growing the game globally and out of the other side tries to convince its fans that, uh, the objective is achieved through the world cash grab of hockey. Not the World Cup of Hockey. Uh, what say you of Ken's 12-day NHL boycott, which would, in theory, prevent him from doing his job, but it sounds like a pretty good publicity stunt. I hope it ends better than most cleanses do, which usually <laughs> was with a terrible stomach and, you know, you gaining all the weight back and not feeling great about yourself. Uh, <laughs> look, I hope it's cathartic for him. I, I hope that, you know, he made his point. It just doesn't seem um like... It's gonna affect much change, Ken. I don't. I don't really know. My hope is that like, like Henrik Lundqvist gets traded for Sidney Crosby, and they're like, Ken, Ken, Ken. We need, we need, we need three hundred words on this stat. It's the most explosive trade in the history of the NHL. And he just like points silently at his computer monitor, and he just mouths the word boycott. Whereas ninety four other hockey writers have a column that they can write about it. Exactly. Yeah. All right, let's move on to puck headlines for this week. Dateline, Madison Square Garden. Emily, what was your take on the Rangers raise the white flag letter to their fans? I don't think we got a chance to talk about this last week. You are someone with Ranger leanings in your history yeah, and in your I family. I am. Grew up a Rangers the, fan. What do you think of the letter? Uh, you know what? I found it refreshing. And I think part of the reason why it was so well received is because it was so off brand for the Rangers who have been such a brash and brazen and boastful franchise in their time of, you know, going for it the last decade and a half. They've made the playoffs 11 the last 12 seasons. And then for them to kind of admit, look, we went for it. It didn't work out. We're going to have to start over. It was refreshingly honest, and and I kind of loved it. What's tricky now is I think it could have the in an unintended effect where all the players they kind of lit a fire under their ass and they're playing really well right now. Yeah. And then what happens when they win out and make the playoffs and go on a run? Yeah, I, I was talking to somebody within the organization the other day about that very thing about like you know it's great that you wrote this letter to the fans and you let them know what's up and what the plan is and what you expect to do. Has anyone told Henrik Lundqvist about the notion of not making the playoffs? And they're like, well, no, and it's not ever going to affect the way he plays. And that's kind of the concern is that after all this repositioning, Hank's going to have like two great weeks and the Rangers are going to be a playoff team. And then he'll win a first round as he's wont to do. So you're basically told your fans, yeah, we need to rethink this whole thing. Oh, by the way, uh, we're a semifinalist in the playoffs. So it's like, what can you do? Uh, Dateline Eastern Conference bubble. Speaking of the Mighty Rangers, you have the Flyers, the Blue Jackets, the Devils, the Hurricanes, the Islanders, and the Rangers, and you have basically three playoff spots open. Third place in the Metro, two wildcard spots, assuming the Pittsburgh and the Capitals are cemented in their places, which we assume on this podcast. So, Flyers, Jackets, Devils, Hurricanes, Islanders, Rangers, pick three. Who makes the playoffs right now? I just can't buy in on the Flyers. I know they've been really hot lately, but they're just so inconsistent and the goaltending's still a problem. I think the Devils pull through. I think they started, they banked some wins early in the year and I think they can recapture some of that magic with John Hines. I like to believe in the Blue Jackets, who I think are probably the most talented team in this bunch, uh, especially if Bob, you know, just starts playing out of his mind. And you ready for the, the wild card in here? Go ahead. The actual wild card besides the Devils? (laughs) I like the Canes. Yeah. I do too. I like the Canes. I, I think they're trending in the right direction, and I have a. It's a weird thing. The ownership thing got settled, and all of a sudden, I feel like that was a kick in the keister for them too. Uh, I'll go um, Blue Jackets, 
just because I feel like their, their, their shooting percentage is going to cycle back up at the right time and Bob will, will, will get a couple wins for him. I'll go Hurricanes and I will go Rangers. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to go with the Islanders. I feel like the Rangers are going to parse the roles enough where they're not going to have enough left to make the playoffs. And I also feel like you might see some guys kind of duck out with quote-unquote injuries to kind of rest up mm. for a season that actually matters next and season. Vinny Lettieri is not going to be a Rick Nash no, I replacement. Don't so. so I think I, th- I think uh, Blue Jackets, uh, Hurricanes, and the New York Hockey Islanders will make the cut, which is great news for uh, Islanders fans. Who are worried that if they may, they don't miss, make the playoffs, then Tavares is basically gone the next day, which I don't really buy, but I worry about their, their mental stability. Uh, Dateline Pyong Chang. Chang? Chung? It's, Mina Kimes is a wonderful lady. She's a great journalist. She did a great PSA on Around the Horn as her final thought. It's Pyong Chang. That's the pr- pronunciation. It's like I said, Dateline South Korea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Are the U.S. women going to be Canada or what? Do we? I, I watched us against Finland and I watched us against Russia. I, I'm sorry, Olympic athletes from Russia, mm. OAR, and I felt like against the OAR, we we played really well. I, I liked what we saw. The Lamru line played well. Uh, there seemed to be a bit more spring in their step. It does help when there isn't an all-world goalie on the other end of the ice as there is when we play Finland. How do you think we fare against the Canadians in this preliminary matchup? Well, we all saw when ESPN writers gave their predictions, and it turns out we're all homers because we all have them winning gold. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think there's a chance Canada wins this first one, um, but I don't think we're going to relinquish it once we get to the gold medal game, which is inevitability. You're right. I love I, watching the game this the morning of Tuesday when we're recording this against the Olympic athletes of Russia, which is such a mouthful. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, let's just be honest. They're all Russian. They're playing Russian hockey. Um we were playing a lot more creative. I liked, you know, especially when the game opened up at the end, I was seeing, you know, the speed of the team really come through. And I think that's what's going to shine against the Canadians. But um, I, I, I love the storyline of them losing to them in this preliminary game and then actually getting full revenge when it comes and it counts. In a way, it's actually, if you look at the bracket, it's actually better if you finish... Second, I believe, because really? the way that the thing is bracketed, the whole point of the of the next part of this tournament in the medal round is you don't want to have to play Finland. You don't want to play Nora Ratu again. She's mm-hmm. the only she's the only player in this entire tournament that has the potential of of stonewalling either Canada or, or, or the U.S. And, and winning a game. So you just you just want to get away from that if you can. So if I want whatever decision is going to allow uh, us to not have to play Finland. In, in the next round is what I'm looking for. So, but I think ultimately what'll probably happen is that we, we beat the Canadians in the semis and I mean, in, in the prelims and then, you know, lose later, which is usually what happens. No, I know. You're it's such a bad homer. It's the worst. Uh, all right. <laughs> this is, this was one you've been dying to talk about. <sighs> Dateline Pyeongchang. Say, did, did you, did you see the gold medalist who happened to also be a, Colorado Avalanche ice girl back in the day, Emily. All right. So we're talking about Mariah Nagasu. And do you know what gets me real lit up about this? Is that you posted on Twitter one of our iTunes reviews that said that I was giving off some strong feminist vibes on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I actually don't think I've given off my strong feminist vibes until now. This is what gets me fired up. Here is a world-class athlete who's trained so hard and performed so well in her sport. 
and we have to find some connection to her in hockey and that she was an ice girl for the avalanche where she had to show her midriff and scoop the ice you know, to clean space. And what I found especially despicable was that the NHL, which is barely promoting this Olympics for obvious reasons, then post something on their website, like claiming stake to her of like, well, she was one of us. And <laughs> yeah. look, the being a nice girl is inherently a little sexist. Um, I, I'm not, you know, totally against it. I, I don't think those girls should be wearing that when they're doing that job. Um, but she did it to raise money for skating lessons, which obviously are not... Uh, cheap and you know to kind of exploit this further just feels extra cruel and i just wish that we were celebrating her for her incredible journey she was snubbed in sochi she came back she landed the most difficult move for a woman skate figure skater to land at all and uh we have to just mention the fact that once she was a nice girl uh, the only thing I'll add is that uh, while many people want the elimination of ice girls i go the other way which is that i want ice boys scantily clad ice boys eye candy for all i think i think once you do that the people who uh, vehemently defend the tradition of ice girls will have a real come to jesus moment about whether they actually want eye candy as it stands inside of hockey arenas can you stop and with your strong feminist vibes right now i'm feeling a little uncomfortable i want that day of reckoning finally uh dateline <laughs> valentine's day if there's one thing that we know about Valentine's Day is that someone in this listening audience is getting a damn Russell Stover's heart <laughs> filled with little tiny chocolates of varying degrees of quality. Emily Kaplan, best and worst, Russell Stover's centric candy. It could be Russell Stover's adjacent. It could be a Whitman sampler. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what kind of little chocolates you like. Best well, and worst. A quick story. When I was going snowboarding this weekend, um, I didn't want to spend a lot of money on snow pants. So we went to Walmart to go get some. Nice. A Walmart in some suburban Chicagoland. And there was a sampling out there. You could all pick a chocolate. And wow. I was so excited. And I guessed because I thought it was going to be the one that I wanted, which is caramel in the middle, which is obviously the best flavor. And I bit into it and it was one with some kind of uh, artificial strawberry slash raspberry puffy filling and i just spit it out it was gross and that's probably why i was such a bad snowboarder last weekend i'll go dark chocolate coconut for my favorite because it's like eating a a mounds plus you're getting all of your antioxidants in and superfoods yeah and i would go (laughs) i would i would go any chocolate that has a cherry type thing that's not an actual cherry like you can get cherry cordials sometimes inside of these chocolate things but if it's like a cherry foam it's like like a like bad shaving cream stuffed inside of a chocolate and flavored to cherry. Get out, get that out of here. Get that. Out of, that's the last chocolate that'll be standing in that big old harder Russell Stover's. So good luck with that. You're just gonna throw it away instead of having that. I bet. All right, now it's time for the thing that we allow you to get uh, take part in each week. The ESPN and Ice rant line. Let's see who has something to say this week. Hey, this is Lee calling from Dayton, Ohio. I am incredibly annoyed at the trapezoid. To say because, you know, one or two goalies were really good at playing the puck and it's like a sixth player, that's garbage. Any person on the ice can play the puck. And the fact that scoring is up because of the way that the hooking's called, slashing's called, means you've got to give goalies something else to be able to disrupt the flow of a game. You know, Greg often points out goalies are stealers of joy. Well, if you have a puck down in the corner, Goalies just got to stand there and look at it like it's a piece of peach, and there's absolutely no reason why the trap is 
enjoyed should still exist. And I think it takes away from one of the most dynamic aspects of the game, which was watching a goalie trying to play the puck. Some could do it pretty well, but man, when they didn't, it was so fun to watch. Keep up the good work, guys. Thanks. I'd like to see how getting rid of the trapezoid works today because I feel like now that we've gotten rid of the the red line and we've allowed the two-line passes and the whole thing, we've never actually seen how it works in conjunction to all the other rules changes where it may not no longer be the linchpin to, to a team playing the trap. I, I fundamentally agree with it because I, I think that not allowing a player to play his position is kind of a weird concept in, in hockey. Yeah. Uh, and I also think that for every Marty Berdour or Marty Turco or Mike Smith or guy who can really handle the puck well, you have people that are fumble bumble hands and fall down and, you know, watching it, you just, you know, scurry around the ice trying to play the puck and they allow offensive chances to happen. Sorry, this is not related at all, but do you know who I noticed this week as a really good puck handler? Who's that? Freddie Anderson. Ah. He has yet a another reason. Puck. Yet another yeah. reason why Freddie Vezina should be a Ooh. thing, right? According to our friends in Toronto. Oh, God. I was on uh, TSN Toronto last week. And what did I say? Oh, we're talking about Henrik Lundqvist. And I made some offhanded comment like, you guys would love him up there. And they got so offended. They're like, we have our goalie. <laughs> there you go. I was like, touche. Oh, well, look, man. that was a great rant. We really appreciate the calls. If you want to call and have your uh, you know, time on ESPN on ice, you can call us at 860-516-1029. That's 860-516-1029. Somebody gave their phone number to, to my wife, Ruby, the other day. Or read her phone number back to them in that manner. We are Trader Joe's actually, and someone read the phone number back. Like they're like, so the number is eighty six zero five. And it was it, it, it was like listening to an Android malfunction. This <laughs> <laughs> is very odd cadence that we had never heard before. All right, that's ESPN and Ice for this week. Our thanks to Mark Lazarus of the Chicago Sun Times. Our thanks to Mike Ruzioni of the Miracle on Ice. And our thanks to you for listening. If you dig what we do, or even if you don't. Go to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review. Everything you say or do helps us out in some way, shape, or form. And tell a friend if you dig what we're doing. Uh, I'm Greg Wachinski, senior writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, a writer. And enjoy uh, Olympic hockey until we see you next week. Bye. Bye. This has been ESPN on Ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.